Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedicate. And now, get ready to think. All right, welcome back to the Think Podcast. This is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain share and defend the Christian message. And we're talking today about something that we've talked about before, but we're going to go pretty in-depth today, and that is the problem of suffering, the problem of suffering. This is a problem that's been with humanity ever since the creation of the world, really. it's It's been around as long as human beings have been around. And it's the question of why do we suffer? Is there meaning in it? Is there purpose in it? Is there any value in our sufferings? And no book of the Bible addresses this problem of suffering more head-on than the book of Job. Have you ever read it? Uh, You know about Job. If you've read this book, you know about the suffering of Job, the patience of Job. But what is the meaning of the book? How should we really understand Job's story? Is Is it even possible that the majority of commentators on this book are missing something very important from the story. Well, in this episode, Dr. Owen Anderson returns to help us. Actually, I should do that more dramatically. In this episode, Dr. Owen Anderson returns, 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 returns to help us find the true, deeper philosophical meaning of Job. Uh, Dr. Anderson has been teaching philosophy and religious studies for more than two decades and is a professor of philosophy and religious studies at Arizona State University. His research focuses on general revelation and related questions about reality, value, knowledge. He's been a, per, a fellow at Princeton University. He's been a visiting scholar at Princeton University and a fellow at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's published several books, including Job, a Philosophical Commentary, which he published in this year, 2021. And in this book, he argues that it is Job, not the Greeks, who really kickstarted philosophy and deserves the title as the first philosopher. So I am very pumped, Think Squad, for this guest to return. This is my fellow um, jujitsu player. And uh, although although we've never uh, gone toe-to-toe ourselves, I'd be a little afraid to, to be honest with you. He, he just uh, advanced belts. But, um, but uh, this is someone who is not only uh, a whiz on the mat, but he's a whiz maybe isn't the right word. He's, a, he's wise uh, when it comes to dissecting and exegeting scripture and philosophy. Um, so without any further ado, let's go ahead and welcome Dr. Owen Anderson. Hey, Joel. Owen, thanks for having me. Hey, man. Thank you so much for coming back. I've really been looking yeah. forward. And not only that, but we've had um, some requests to have you back on. So um, Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. So you wrote this book, and yeah. um, it's called, I've got it in my hands right here. It's called Job. A philosophical commentary, which right off the bat, you know, this piques my interest because the book of Job, of course, is wisdom literature. That, that's how we refer to it as wisdom literature. Right. And yet, the, it seems like most of the commentaries on this book are done from a very and solely theological standpoint. But here you come along with a philosophical commentary. Yeah. Why, why approach it philosophically? Well, my, my main area in philosophy is the philosophy of religion. And one of the main things we study in that is the problem of evil because, because we're studying proofs for God's existence. So we also study challenges to belief in God, the main one of which is 
evil and suffering. Right. So, Some say it's the most prominent yeah. uh, objection that's out there currently. Oh, yeah, I think so. I think uh, especially the personal level, you'll find that'll be the main one that people say, I just can't believe in God because of all the suffering. And, and everyone will have their own story. They'll say, yeah, I had this happen to me and I just can't believe in God. Yeah. Totally. So, so that's already on my mind. And then uh, I'm teaching uh, and going over books like the book of Job. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is really, as you put in the introduction, this is the book in scripture that really directly deals with the problem of suffering yeah. and evil. And when you read it, it reads like a dialogue, right? Right. In, in philosophy, we like these platonic dialogues. Yeah. Well, that's this reads like. You know, that, that was funny. I thought that was a really cool insight. You're right. Because you read, you know, Socrates, um, this is where we get the idea of Socratic questioning from Socratic learning, yeah. this idea of asking questions and, and getting answers and drawing out the answers. And that really is the way Job is structured, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so you have his, uh, you, you, you have first Satan and God, but then you have Job and his friends and Job and Elihu, and then a uh, God speaking to Job. And in all of that, you have a back and forth and exchange, which is refining the ideas involved. So I saw that part of it. And then playing with the idea of the first philosopher, because Aristotle is the one who says the first philosopher is Thales, who was one of the Greek materialists. And he said everything was water, correct? Yeah, right. Yeah. So he's a philosopher because he, instead of relying on the Homeric epics to explain things, he gives a naturalistic account of the world. Right. So whether or not that's true in the Greek thinking, yeah, perhaps that's true for the development of Greek thought. Uh, Job comes before him, even if, even if someone who's using higher criticism to date Job Job comes before him, let alone if you take the, the more traditional view, which is that Job lived probably just before Abraham and the book of Job was written down by Moses. Yeah. All of that would be way before Thales. And so I'm, I'm putting him as a first philosopher, not only for that reason, not just for dating methods, uh, chronology, but also because I think he's dealing with the first problem, so to speak. Mm. The pro Meaning the pro problem of, of suffering. Suffering, yeah. It's, a, it's the first problem that we all encounter in our life and the way we answer it really shapes the rest of our life. Yeah, man. Ain't that the truth? Because suffering is such a universal experience. And yep. so we're, we're all going to suffer. We're all going to have to deal with it one way or the other, whether we get philosophical with it or turn to God or, or whether we just try to numb the pain through yeah. distractions or just know. avoid suffering. Yeah. Now um, real quick. So you date, you date the book of Job to shortly before Abraham, right? That's that one of the, yeah, that's one of the, the common traditional views. Is in the book, there's no mention of the children of Abraham or distinction between the chosen people and Gentiles. Right. So it's thought to be before the call of Abraham. Uh, but then it, it's thought by some to be one of the books of Moses, that Moses is the one who wrote down. It's, a, it's an actual historical figure, but Moses is the one who wrote it. Down. Yes. So... So um, I'm looking it up right now. I um, I I like the interpretation that Job is one of the Jobabs in the genealogies. Um, in Genesis, let's see what uh, looks like Genesis chapter ten. There's there are the there are these genealogies, you know, coming yeah. down from from Noah. And there's two Jobabs. There's one who I think was a king, and uh, and that seems to fit. But he lived he he lived I think closer to Abraham's time. But then there was another Jobab who lived closer to the flood. And um, I, I I like that earlier Jobab 
being Job, just because I don't know about you, man, but when I read Job, I see all of these natural phenomena and the the these giant megafauna that are still in existence. And I think yeah. that kind of sounds like it's almost it was almost like, you know, like holdovers from the antediluvian period a little bit. What yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's the thing. Those, those may have been around longer than we think. Mm. So that yeah, that, that's mm. a good point. But but I, I'm agree. I, I agree with you. You know, pre Abraham. Yeah. I don't think a lot. I I guess here's the thing. I think it is Job is a historical person. Really lived and went through yeah. these things. It was not just a fictional narrative. Yeah. I'm not sure a lot hinges on how much we exactly get the date right. So even if someone said, I think he lived in 600. Well, guess what? Thales was 585. So right. he still beats Thales, right? Right. So right. either way, for the purpose of like the first philosopher, so to speak. Um, and and what's interesting, yeah. So so philosophy, Job's dealing with because here's one criticism. Well, Dr. Anderson, you're getting into revealed religion, and philosophy doesn't deal with revealed religion. Right. No, Job's all about general revelation. That is a fascinating thing you bring up. Even out. when God shows up. God doesn't quote the Bible to Job. God directs Job to natural theology. Yeah. Well, the Bible, the, I mean, what, what Bible was there? Exactly. That's why, yeah, point. it'd be funny. Yeah. God doesn't Job quote Matthew at Job, right? He doesn't know Matthew yet. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that, that's the thing about the book of Job is it's all dealing with things that philosophers can and should deal with. Right. And for you, would you say that philosophy ought to be rooted in natural revelation, general, general revelation? I think that's basically what, I mean, philosophy could have different meanings. Philosophy could mean a, a method of thinking and kind of a, a critical application of reason. Yeah. And then that could be applied to anything. You could have philosophy of scripture, philosophy of law, philosophy yeah. of education. But if you think of it as an area of study, then yeah, it seems like it studies the very first, most basic things we ask about. All right. And, and as a follower of Jesus, a Bible believer, you believe that, um, would you say that God's given us two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture, yeah, or do you not go way to put it? Yeah, okay. that's one I think so. I think, I think I would put it this way that our greatest good is to know God mm -hmm. and we know God through his works and those yeah. works are creation and providence. So creation isn't just a means of holding us inexcusable, we are inexcusable for not seeing it, but it's also the source of our greatest good because it's the source of the knowledge of God. It's the work of God. Yeah. And that's really what God does with Job, right? God directs Job to his own, to God's own works. Yes. And this is something that we teach our own kids. So I wrote this catechism called Catechids for my kids. And um, anybody who's interested, by the way, can go check that out on the website, thethink.institute slash catechids. But one of the questions that I have in the catechism Owen is what are the two ways we learn to know God? And the answers are by his words and by his, by his works and by his yeah. word. Yeah. And um, that's one of the things I appreciate a lot about, um, about your book, but, I, but just in, in what I've seen, you know, you post and write and the thoughts that you put out there, you put such a strong emphasis on general revelation. Yeah. Um, can you, can you maybe hash out for us your view of general revelation and what is it that we're supposed to know from general revelation? Yeah. So general revelation just refers to God's works in creation and history. Okay. Um, in contrast to scripture, which is redemptive revelation and redemptive revelation assumes that you need redemption, right? If you don't need redemption, then you don't need redemptive revelation. So the work God's works in creation and history tell us about who God is. Any, I mean, really, that's true for anybody, right? Whatever you do tells other people about you. 
unavoidable. Yeah. So, and that's why the problem of evil has a lot of power because people say the works of God are terrible. They're filled with evil. And that matters because the works of God, if God is good, shouldn't mm. be filled with evil. So uh, the importance of, we, we don't want, we've, we've lost the role of general revelation as the source of the knowledge of God. And we, and we need to recapture that and bring that back into the public attention. Hmm. How do we recapture that? Well, I think one, one quick way is just by, I guess what I just mentioned earlier, our highest good is to know God. Yeah. We do that through the works of God, not some other way. Because one of the main things that, that happens is that religion gets turned into a kind of otherworldly plan. So the idea mm. is, I'll do certain things now so that in the next life, I have a good time. And maybe I see God then. As opposed to saying, well, you, you can know God now the same way you'll know God then, which is through the works of God. So otherworldliness often sets aside general revelation as unimportant. It's actually more like Plato. We're talking about Socrates. Plato and the, and the Greek philosophers who downplay this world and say this world is just a world of shadows at best and change, and the best life is in the next world. Right. So I think that's one thing, getting in, in focus, what's our highest good? That it's is to uh, know God in his works. And then secondly, being able, as, as this philosophers, being able to demonstrate that we can indeed know God. So you said, what can we know from general revelation? Well, we can know that God alone is eternal. Nothing else is. The material world is not. I'm not. And those are two of the main world philosophies, either teaching that the soul has existed from eternity yeah. or the material world has existed from eternity or both. So you should be able to show that, that no, only God has existed from eternity. Everything else had a beginning. And then you should be able to show the, the moral properties of God, that God is good. God mm. has knowledge, perfect in knowledge, goodness, power. So I think you can show all those things just from general revelation. And it's because we didn't see that. This is how Romans 1 describes it, right? Because we didn't see that was clear from the world, we exchanged that for idols that were without excuse. Yes. And something occurred to me as I was reading your book. It's, I've often thought of it of our inability to see God through general revelation. The reason why we, why we don't get to God is because of our sin, you know, the noetic effects of sin on our minds. But what you bring out in the book and tell me if you, if, if I'm reading you right, the, the very fact that we don't see God from general revelation, that itself is sin. So it's yeah. a cause it's caused by sin, but it, it's also sinful in and right. of itself because yeah. we are, we, we should, it like uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards might say, you know, we're 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 like we're naturally right. able to do so, but we're morally unable, yeah, unable exactly. to do it. Would, would you like, agree with that? Good, yeah, absolutely. So, in other words, someone could say someone could bring up good, solid, reformed uh, ordo salutis and say, mm -hmm. well, you're born dead and you're trespassing and sins, and you have to be regenerated in order to convert. Right. All of that is a different topic than what I'm. Just, I'm not doubting that order of things. I'm pointing out that. Being dead in your trespasses and sins means you don't see what's clear about God. And that itself is sinful. Yeah. So that's yeah. what it says in Romans 1 is that God gave them over in his wrath. He gave them over to a darkened mind. The darkened mind is the wrath of God on humans. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And um, and so before we start digging into the meat of Job here then, so w would you say Thales, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, these Greeks that we think of as being the, the fathers of philosophy, the, the founders of philosophy, um, 
they didn't really get past the starting block, did they? Because they they never started with with general revelation, or or did they somehow? Well, that's the thing is that so they're working within ostensibly general revelation. Yeah. But what's interesting is in John one it says the logos is in the world and the world knew him not. Yeah. So they're studying the logos. And the words that come down to us often even have that in them, like biologos, biology, or geologos, not astrologos, right? We do astronomy instead, right? But uh, but they didn't know they didn't know it. So uh, so it's it's popular among philosophers to get really excited if they see a kind of proof in Aristotle or Plato for God. But I'll put the word God in quotes because what Aristotle and Plato are proving isn't anywhere near God the Creator. It's not really even a step closer to God the Creator than materialism. This is a being who is imperfect, co-eternal with the world, yeah, co-eternal with our own souls, not the creator of things, not all good. This is not the creator at all. So, so and and the more the more so, for example, that Plato says God is good, the more he has this problem that God is removed from the material world because the material world is evil. So yeah. Plato will say things like God. Sometimes he'll say God is so good, God doesn't really do much in the world. Which is more more of that um, deist or um, not kind of Gnostic view of God. God's yeah, aloof. that or, or I think it's called. I think Gnosticism comes out of Greek dualism. So it's Greek dualism. Oh, okay. There's two things: yeah. spirit, which is really good, and matter, which is really bad. Yeah. And our goal is to get out of the material world and climb up to the spirit world, and that's just a rejection of Genesis chapter one which says the material world is very good. Yes. God created it good. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so, I think, so here's the thing. What, what, what is said in Romans one applies to Plato and Aristotle and Socrates also. They're, so, in, they're inexcusable in their unbelief. Yes. So even, even these so-called lovers of wisdom, they're still suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's the yeah. universal condition and being a yeah. philosopher doesn't get you out of that. So I, so I think I think there's a worry of a kind of anti-intellectualism that people will come along and just say, oh, Plato doesn't have the Bible, so Plato's stupid. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, there's things that Plato, uh, you know, insights that he came across like any other person studying that are important. Yeah. But don't. But but here's where you find him problematic, not because he doesn't have the Bible, but because he had but didn't understand general revelation. That's mm-hmm. where we should hold Plato accountable. Okay. Okay. You know. As a Christian apologist, you know, I like to think a lot about uh, the laws of logic, or I think you've recently called them the laws of thought, which, you know, makes sense. Um, And when you think about the the kind of God that would be necessary, let's say all you had was logic and we knew, we knew, we knew about the law of non-contradiction and the law of identity and the law of um, excluded middle. You could, as a, as a Christian, I know I'm on the other side of this thought process, but I, I believe if we were thinking perfectly clearly, you could reason your way back to God from the laws of logic. Like you could ask yourself, well, what kind of God would be necessary in order? Yeah. What kind of meta- metaphysic would be gra- uh, necessary? Mm-hmm. And he'd have to have all the attributes of God. I even think he'd have to be triune, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so I'm looking at that and I'm like, man, like if we really knew how to understand general revelation, yeah. it would absolutely lead us all the way back to the triune God of Scripture, it leads us. It leads us to God, and also, it's it is what will fill your life with joy that you get to know God, the Creator. So it's not. I agree with you about all that apologetic stuff, hmm. but apologetics is the defense of the faith. 
And, and what, what we're talking about right now is even more than that. It's not just that we can know these things to defend against other views. It's that knowing these things is what brings us joy. Yeah. Just in themselves, they're worth knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Okay. So let's talk about Job then. So you say Job is the first philosophical work, Owen, because mm-hmm. um, not only in terms of chronolo- uh, chronology, but yeah. also in the sense that it's dealing with the first philosophical problem, which is the problem of evil, yeah. the problem of suffering. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you view it as a, as a dialogue and you, you point out in your book that it, it is, it feels like a series of speeches, but it's, it is a dialogue. Yeah. That's the only thing is it's it, using a platonic dialogue is like two sentences, then two sentences, then two sentences. It's more of a give and take. Whereas here they're doing my two page speech, then your two pages, but it still has an interchange. I mean, they're not just talking past each other. They are actually responding to what the person just said. So, so you view it as a philosophical conversation, ph- philosophical yeah. dialogue. Yeah. And you believe that Job is an account of something that actually happened? Yeah, right. So I don't think this is just, just literature. Now, one, one interesting thing is, for one purpose, that doesn't matter. The purpose of bringing us to where Job was at the end of the book doesn't matter if he was historical or fictional. But I think once we get a lot of those questions kind of fall away once we get in place what Job needs to learn. Cause a lot of those questions come up from some probably some higher criticism um, and uh, archeology span and say, well, we don't have any evidence of it. There was this guy. Yeah. So we, we basically, I, I would suggest a reorienting of how do we answer those questions? Sure. But if you were just presented with this book and someone said, Hey, I just read this great novel. You should read it. And by the end of the book, you come to where Job is at. Yeah. Then I think that's the point of it. Sure. Sure. Um, yes. So it, it's serving a purpose, um, which, which certainly doesn't negate it from being an actual, yeah. uh, true account. Correct. Like my, my personal view, I, I think it's a true account, Me too, but yeah. yeah, but it, but well, it's imagine, the Bible for a reason. Let's say Moses did write this down. Mm. It comes, of course, chronologically, it comes after Genesis or, or in the middle of Genesis. We talked about that earlier, right. but but in terms of intri- bringing us into the problems that Genesis answers, this comes before that. This okay. introduces us to our suffering and our need for redemption, which we then are directed to Genesis to understand the answers to start there. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's so that's so the format of Job is it's a uh, philosophical dialogue, a philosophical conversation, not mm-hmm. quite like a Platonic dialogue but similar what is what is the deep could you articulate for us what is the deep problem being addressed in the book of job yeah it's both it's both deep and familiar the world doesn't seem to be well managed the righteous suffer and the wicked often prosper and we feel that ourselves because we often assign ourselves as being righteous and we'll say yeah i've i've suffered and i don't deserve it and so I can't make sense of the world, and I'd prefer not to even be in the world, a world like this. Not to mention, there's no way you can say this world was made by a perfectly good and powerful and knowledgeable God. So the world doesn't seem to be well-managed. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe we could lay out our, our players then. You've got, mm-hmm. you've got Job. Um, the inciting incident for Job, it's it's really interesting. There's this whole behind the scenes story 
And you almost get the sense that's really where the action is going to be. It's going to be in heaven with Satan and God. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, when it first starts out. Yeah, and and the people on earth are almost uh, secondary. You know, you've got God bringing yeah. up the conversation, uh, bringing up Job. Hey, I've considered my servant Job. But you know, you, you feel like the action is going to be drawn back up into the heavenlies there with with God and his his heavenly court and everything. Mm-hmm. But really, the action stays down on earth. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't even you you start off with this the uh, Satan figure. He never shows up again because you might expect like at the end he'll yeah he'll get his or something. Uh, so so he shows up and and really he's not the motivating actor either though. It's God who says this phrase which sticks with me through the whole book. Yeah, have you considered my servant Job? And that I think is for Satan. Have you Satan in that speech speech context? But it's really for us. Have we considered God's servant Job? And what he went through before we begin saying things like the world has too much evil in it. And I picked that phrase, not well managed on purpose. It's a little bit different than saying, if there's evil, God can't exist. Hmm. So it's recognizing that perhaps there's not a, what's called a logical problem of evil. Perhaps God permits evil, but the way God is doing that, he, he's not wise. Yeah, He's not doing it the right way. And so the world is really messed up. So that's the question. Is the world perfectly managed or is the world not managed well at all? Hmm. Right. Okay. So we're, we're talking about Job and his friends, his supposed comforters. They don't yeah. have Romans eight. They don't have Romans nine. They don't, they don't have, you know, for God works all things together for the good yeah. of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Um, so who, who are these players? Who are these, these comforters? And um, I thought you did such a helpful job of identifying each of these different helpers, you know, Bill, Dad, Eliphaz, and their worldviews and their, you know, the insight we get into their backgrounds. Who are these guys? And what is, what worldview are they representing? Is it a biblical worldview? Is it? Yeah. Well, that's what's interesting is, is uh, we don't know, say that they're this or that historical person, but we can kind of flesh out their personality and their, their, as you said, their worldview from what they say, right? So Eliphaz is the the most sophisticated of those three. And he gives some of the more sophisticated arguments to Job. Whereas Zophar is more direct and common sense. You're suffering. So you sinned. So you should repent straightforward. Just do it. Whereas Eliphaz has some arguments he shares. He has some personal experiences he shares so you get this difference showing up between them. And then Bildad's more of a traditionalist. He, he refers to the elders, what he's learned from the elders. And the tradition has come down to him and that we should follow that. Yeah. So there's a, a dynamic going on where they're similar, but they're, they're uh, different. And here's the thing. What if they're believers? Hmm. Like what they say is sometimes right. That's one of the hardest things about going through this book. You could pick a verse at random, you know, something from Eliphaz, yeah. and you could go, that sounds like something from Proverbs. That sounds yeah. wise, you know? Yeah. And then and then it's like you read ahead a couple of pages, and oh, no, ooh, God yeah. God is condemning Eliphaz, you know, for that. Yep. How, how do we how do we view these these companies? In other words, the and and Job is asked to offer a sacrifice for them. Right. So they seem to have the same, they're wrestling with the same unbelief Job's wrestling with. 
But because they're not suffering, they're in a position of comfort. They speak to Job almost condescendingly. Like yeah. they know the answer and he right. doesn't. And that's the proof of that simply that he's suffering so badly. God must have be getting him. And, and, but that doesn't disqualify them as believers. The reason why I say that is that could be us. Hmm. We identify with Job, even though most of us have never suffered like that. We might actually be one of these three guys in our th thought process and how we approach others and how we think about the problem of suffering. Hmm. Did you, as you were studying this, did you find yourself reflected, so to speak, in any of the, uh, the, the helpers? The well, I think in a way with each of them, because, because Eliphaz, he gives this argument from personal experience. He had a vision and that vision really shaped all of his thinking. He doesn't ever critically think about the vision. He just assumes it was real. Yeah. And got wisdom. Yeah. A, a, a phantom, a phantasm. Yeah passed in front of him in the night and revealed something to him. Yeah. So, but a lot of people are like that. A, a totally. religious experience has shaped their thinking Yeah. and that's how they live their life now. Yeah. And then with Bildad, yeah, I think maybe for a philosopher, he's attractive because the elders, the philosophers who came before us, we should know what they say and we should apply their insights. And don't he's you think list. Yeah. Yeah. He's a classical yeah. education guy. He yeah. knows this stuff. And don't, don't you think that they've thought about this stuff already and they know the answers. Right. And then, and then Zophar, I, I've kind of tried at him just because there's times we just want to be direct and get things done. Yeah. Hey, you sinned. Repent. Simple. Very right. simple equation. So very common sense yeah. and direct. So, yeah, I think we can see something in each of them. But what, what it does is it draws our attention back to the role of unbelief. Even though they can say true things about God, fundamentally, they're in unbelief about how God rules the world. And they have this equation. If you suffer or if you're unrighteous, you will suffer. Right. And that's a fundamentally false. It gets the order wrong. The, the punishment, the consequence, the death spoken of in Genesis 3 is not physical death because it says the day you eat, you'll surely die. Mm. And, and they have another 900 years after this. Yeah. The consequence is spiritual death. And they did die the day they ate. Right. So there is it. So so the, the friends are right. There are consequences for unrighteousness, but they're looking for the wrong ones, and they're not noticing spiritual death. And when you see Job wrestling, it comes out in his expressions that that's what he's wrestling with. Ultimately, what he's the problem for him is not the suffering. The problem for him is the meaninglessness. And he says that in chapter seven. Yes. I just wish I had meaning. And you know something that that really struck me here is here you've got a guy who is called blameless. He's called, he's called upright. He's called holy at the beginning of the book. And yet throughout your book, you talk about root sin versus fruit sin. Yeah. And maybe if you could unpack that for us a little bit, yeah. what, because, and this seems like something that a lot of the interpreters, a lot of the commentators miss Owen is, um, is, Job actually repents and he doesn't just repent of having some kind of a uh, overconfidence. Right. He, he repents of sin yeah. and it's like, well, wait a minute. The book opened up with calling him blameless. How, where yeah, right. was he sinning? And not only that, but Eliphaz and, and Zophar, Bildad, they were calling him out for sin and mm -hmm. he maintained his innocence. And so how is he sinning and why is yeah. he still called blameless? Can you help us understand that? Yeah, and I get into the list of some of the sins they accuse him of. It's pretty, they're pretty dirty sins. And, and they harden in their accusations as they go. Yeah, they yeah. get worse and worse. I think that's really the fixed point that the whole narrative revolves around is that Job repents. 
And you don't repent of something that's not sin. You repent of sin. Right. So the the motion, the flow of the book is towards the climax, which is Job saying, now I abhor myself and I repent. So what is he repenting of? And, and he says it just before. He says, now I see you. So the implication is he's repenting of not having seen God sooner. And this is not visible seeing, right? Mm -hmm. It says God spoke to him out of the world when he's not seeing God. It's understanding. Now I understand I'm repenting of not having understood before. I should have understood before. And that's the same thing all of us need to repent of. And I, I try to do this in the book. I connect it up to other wisdom literature, whether it's the Psalms or Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, to show this common theme that human, it, humans don't seek God. It says it over and over up until Paul quoting it in Romans 3. And that's what I'm calling root sin. The root sin meaning the same sin for all of us. We haven't all done the same fruit sins. Right. Some of us have one, some of us have another, but we've all done the same thing, which requires Christ. And that is we haven't been seeking God and we haven't, it goes in this order, not seeking, not understanding, not doing what is right in Romans mm -hmm. 3, 10 and 11. And because we didn't seek, we didn't understand, but our problems compounded because we think we understand. So the, the, here, here's what Job had to find out to get you to cut through, not just your sin. But to cut through your self-deception, where you say, I'm doing good, I'm seeing God, and your self-justification, which is when other people come to you, you defend yourself and you blame them, Yeah. to get to actually see your sin, that's what the book of Job tells us is required. That's what it's going to take because we don't listen. Man, and that that is so hard. And I got to tell you, as I was reading, uh, there was one part where... I think maybe on page 183, it was close to the end, I wrote... Um, so whenever I read a book, I create my own table of contents in the beginning. Oh, here. Good. So, yeah. So cool. I've got all my notes there. And um, I wrote down that you had a great, uh, a good call to the reader to repent. And I got to tell you, I, I will, I will, um, uh, I will, I will, you know, own this when I'm accused of something, especially when, when I, I know I didn't do it or I didn't do it the way that I'm being accused of. Yeah. I vigorously want to defend myself. Yeah, We all do. Yeah. That's like human nature. Yeah. But one of the things that I've uncomfortably noticed time after time is that even if I'm not guilty of what I'm being accused of, often God will use that process to yeah. bring out deeper sins like pride, for example, like like pride that's being pricked by mm -hmm. this false accusation, you know, like I'm not guilty of that, but God is using it to say, yes, but, but notice how you reacted. Notice how yeah. quick you were to defend yourself. You yeah, know? right. And, and and I got that sense as I'm reading about Job. I'm like, okay, he wasn't guilty of these horrible things, right? But but uh, surface things. But he was guilty of something deeper. And isn't it interesting how we reverse it? We think what you just said is is a, a I did it. Yeah. The horrible things, yeah. And not I didn't see God, right? At least I didn't That's do the not horrible, that bad, yeah. Yeah, at least I didn't do the horrible things. We're, we're really what God's trying to get our attention is say it's just the opposite. That's right. And all three of his friends are guilty of this, which is why he he's he's directed to offer a sacrifice for them. But they didn't come to the same repentance he did because of that process. But here's the thing. Uh, well, let me let me answer one quick. I didn't answer yet. Is Joe blameless? It's the same thing that's mentioned about elders that an elder should be blameless. I don't think any of us take that to mean sinless. Right. None of us are sinless, so no one would ever be an elder of a church. Yeah. So so blameless means you don't have any. Uh, public outstanding sins that need to be addressed with other people or things in your life that are a, a constant uh, shortcoming that you're not able to overcome. Yeah. 
If you've got those things, you're not ready yet to be an elder. Right. So I, I take that to be what it is with Job. He doesn't have anything like that. And a lot of, and, and pretty well, everything that he's accused of by his friends are things like that. None of them are true. But what God is helping us do is see there is this deeper level of repentance needed of not seeking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we do, I think our human nature is, is, is like the default is to say, whoa, so God's going to get mad at me for, for not seeking him, for not yeah. knowing him, you know? Uh, and then we go right to justifying it. Well, uh, well, what about the evidence? There wasn't enough evidence, God, you know, yeah. you didn't, it, you right. didn't give me enough evidence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then we'd say, yeah, general relation is not clear after all that, which is why back to your first point, your first question to me, why do I p- spend time on declared to general relation? Cause that's exactly what that excuse is. Yeah. It's not clear at all. I can't see if God exists. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, offhand the, the apologist who says, you know, there was an atheist who asked for, yeah. or, or maybe it was a cartoon, you know, um, he wanted evidence for God apart from the entire universe. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it was, ba- it was probably a Babylon Bee or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it might've been. I think right. So, so uh, how did you feel reading a philosophy book and getting a call to repentance? Ha. Huh. Oh, it was, it was, um, it was terrible. I like my philosophy to be separate from my, yeah. no, uh, no, it was, it, it really, it was great. Um, it really was because, you know, the, the flow of the book. So as I'm reading, um, the, the anticipation is building because I'm, I'm, I want, you have a very conversational style of writing. Yeah. And I tried for that in this one, because I have a few academic books that are academic books. Okay. Right? And so they, they read like, like that, my books of Cambridge. And for this one, I didn't want it like that. I wanted it to be, something that is, as you say, conversational, easier to read, because this is an everybody problem. This is not just like a professional problem. Right. Yeah. And so so by the time you get to the later chapters, I don't know if it's uh, part six or part seven, but you start, um, you, you really unveil, here is what Job needed to repent of. Here's what he was repenting of. and And here's what we all need to repent of. It flowed naturally from yeah. the which which was cool, Owen, because you want if we're gonna be doing Christian philosophy, yeah. it should be Christian and repentance right. is part it's yeah. a huge part of Christianity. Well, that's what I love. I mean, probably one of my favorite parts of scripture is Acts 17, where Paul's in Athens. Yeah. And I love I think he's I think he's the quintessential philosopher there. Because right. he goes through if you don't know Greek philosophy, you won't catch it. But mm-hmm. in his short address, he goes through Greek philosophy and what they're concerned about. And he ends up at the resurrection, yep. which is foreign to their philosophy, but it's a very common human problem. What, what happens after I die? Yeah. So I, I think that's a masterful example. So I, I, I see that as something I would aspire to if I can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we're thinking about death. You just mentioned death and, and we're talking about sin. Can we talk about Job's 10 kids? Yeah. Like they, Job is sacrificing for them because they may have cursed God in their heart. Right. He's clearly yeah. worried about them. And and this is an idea I got from you hearing another conversation that you had on a different podcast. He's He seems like he's worried about them. And then they die. Mm-hmm. And then the, talk, talk to us about that. What's going on with Job's 10 kids? Yeah. How do we understand the fact that they die? Well, yeah, that's a good question because thing it, it, it could be viewed as these are simply instrumental to Job's story. So it's like, hey, I'm glad dad came around. I, I died though, right? Uh, so how how does that fit into the problem of evil? Isn't that just a compounding of it? And and I think it's important that 
they're having these dinners while Job is concerned and sacrificing for them, and they're apparently not joining him in that. So you wonder about their own condition of belief. So what I say in the book is they each have their own story about seeking or not seeking and being called to stop and think, which we don't get told, but they, they know it. Um, and so it's not simply instrumental for Job, right? Each of them was apparently old enough to reflect on the fact that the, they die. So that it happens when you're young doesn't, doesn't change the fact that you had time to think about it. Yeah. So is that what you're asking? Yeah. And, and how do we avoid, how do we handle the accusation that they were just collateral damage in yeah. this cosmic battle over Job's soul? Their, their lives don't even seem to matter. Yeah. Right. So for here, here you could, the only reason you would conclude that is because of the, the small amount of time they're given. Right. But as I, that's why I just said, they have their own story yes. also. That doesn't negate. This is, this is considered my servant Job. Right. And that's a part of his story. But then there's each of their stories and those will all be equally dear. The, the story yes. of any believer. It says that in the Psalms that God holds dear the death of any believer. Yeah. But there's this question about them. Yeah. Why aren't they? concern the way job is and then the, here's what makes it worse is that people say well then and then he gets more kids at the end right so it's like he had camels donkeys uh and kids yeah and he gets all those things again and, and again i think it would just be uh uncharitable reading to suggest that that somehow equates those things yeah yeah right and um i i was actually talking with my wife about this earlier because this was an insight i never had before until i i read this in your book so he did get 10 more kids. Mm -hmm. He didn't, but it's wrong to think Job is getting his 10 kids back. And therefore, yeah. cause he's not getting his 10 kids back. He's it didn't double like everything else. Yeah. Yes. But, but if you take an eternal perspective, Job does believe in the resurrection. Exactly, he, yeah. he says that. So yes, Job himself is long dead. I mean, death comes to us all. So yeah. Job and his kids are eventually going to be resurrected. Job wasn't given those, those 10 kids were not um, like recompense where God right. is repaying Job his, for the 10 kids he lost. He's blessing him with 10 more children. Exactly, yeah. And now he's got 20 kids. Exactly. Like yeah. that's, that's a, yeah, I'm great. I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, exactly. They, they don't stop existing. You, yes. Wow. They are still, they're down in Sheol at that point. Yeah. Now they're, I, if they're believers, I believe they, they'd be up in heaven. Um, but, but well, that's one of the things that's interesting about Job is he, it does, you know, sometimes the, I think falsely, the old Testament has said not to believe in the old, in the, in the uh, next life or life after death. But yeah. Job's one of the books where you see, no, obviously it does. Yeah. And specifically mentions the resurrection. Yes. So it's interesting. In other words, compared to the Greeks who believed this life is evil. And the, so they spend a lot of time, the Egyptians also a lot of time on when you die, the, the uh, Jewish books believe this world is made by God and good. And so they spend a lot of time on this world, but it doesn't follow. They don't believe in the next life. Yes. Um, how did Job get that? Because you do not see that in Genesis one through three. How did Job come to believe in the resurrection? I mean, good. he, he says, yeah. I mean, he knows his redeemer lives. And then he also knows that after his flesh is destroyed, he will see God with his eyes. Well, yeah. no, Job, you don't understand. Your eyes have been destroyed. You're not going to see. No, I will. I'm going to get new eyes and I'm right. going to see God. How does Job get that? And why does this connect up to the theme you asked about generation? Because 
I think he could. I think he could know from general revelation that God made the world very good. That sometime after the creation of the world, moral evil entered the world, and that after that, not before it, natural evil, including death, entered the world. Though from there, you could reason that if moral evil is removed, death will also be removed, and the dead will be raised. How did and he it know? would be all of them, just and unjust, right? Death is removed, so everyone who died is raised. How did he know that moral evil would be removed? Well, that's the, oh, right, so that's the next part, the redemption part. Yeah. The he very knows? fact, okay. this I is what's beautiful about suffering. I have a couple quotes in, in there about this from other parts of the Bible. One of them is from Amos 4, when, God's, when God is putting judgment on Israel and suffering, he says, I'm doing this to woo you back to me. Now, we often think it's the opposite. That's what the whole book of Job is about, is we think this proves God hates me. And it's just the opposite. God is calling you to stop and think for the first time in your life. It's because God loves you that he's putting a roadblock. You're on, you're on the, this is the proverbial highway to hell, so to speak. You're, you're, you're on pedal of the metal in the wrong direction. God puts a roadblock in your way, and you say it's because he hates you. So natural evil isn't punishment. It's a call to stop and think about your moral condition. Yeah. So how would we know he'd be redeemed? Well, just the very fact of natural evil. If God meant to leave us in our spiritual death, he wouldn't have put natural evil in the world to call us to stop and think. Okay, so the presence of natural evil points to redemption, and redemption necessarily, inevitably, leads to resurrection. So resurrection is revealed in general rev revelation. If we had eyes to see it, we would we would see it. Even even just given the Genesis one through three worldview, right? Yeah, I think I think once you add in Genesis one through three, you've got it all. Yeah, but I that's think a, that's amazing. This, yeah, I think you can get this from. Generation. I was on Sunday. I was going over Luke twenty-four, and you have three groups in Luke twenty-four. You have the women, the disciples, and then these, these two other disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're all reprimanded with the same thing, which is that they didn't expect the resurrection, and they should have from Moses and the prophets. Right. And so, take Moses to especially be summarized in Genesis one through three. Once you get there, you have this one that's promised: the seed of the woman, not a seed of a man or woman, seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Now, I think you could probably also figure this out in this way, which is that if someone, which is this, I can't pay for my own sin because I'm the sinner. It's like my, my credit card's maxed out, so I can't use my credit card to pay it off. Someone else will have to pay for me. But since they're paying for me, a human, in some sense, they're going to have to be a human. So anyone from Adam to Abel, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, anyone involved in these animal sacrifices would know what Peter later tells the Jews, which is these were never the final sacrifice. They were only symbolic because an animal can't pay for your sins. So Job knew that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is incredible. It's that's, that's amazing to me that he saw that. Um, so many, miss it and so many commentators miss these things when they're looking at job and i'm not trying to throw everybody under the bus by any means yeah there's some but, good ones i do i do have some i have a mixture in my bibliography i have i have a uh, uh carl young listed yeah and you and yeah. i've spoken before about gnosticism and his right. his his book on job is pure gnosticism if you want to read that and then yeah. i've got yeah i've got other good ones listed as well so what what are, what's What's the biggest thing that, that they miss? Here's the problem that I, I heard over and over, which is one of the things that pushed me into this book. The book of Job tells us we can't know why there's evil 
You just have to basically shut your mouth and do what you're told. And that's how people read Job in those last four chapters. God shows up, says, who are you to question me? Look what I've done. Right. And Job has no answer. And he kind of cowers in fear and the book ends. And I thought, man, what? A, that's terrible. That, that's not what the book does at all. And, and how badly are, are they missing it? So that so, was one of the, that would be the main one I found problematic. Okay. Because what that did for me was it showed me how what the framework you bring to Job is what you'll get out of Job. So these persons, if you, if you inspect them a little bit, guaranteed, they don't believe you can know God from general revelation. Yeah. Nor could they show that God exists from general revelation. So of course they miss that in the book of Job. Right. Well, so how do you avoid that for yourself though? Because you're bringing a certain framework to Job as well. Yeah. How do you know you're not just reading in, reading out of the book what you're putting into it? Well, yeah, we. I don't think we can avoid that. That itself is not the problem. The problem is if you come to it uncritically with a false uh, set of assumptions. So your task as a reader is to one, know your assumptions and two, test them for meaning. Okay. So if you come to it knowing, I'm confident that, Gen that Genesis 1 through 3 worldview is true. I'm confident that includes the clarity of general revelation. Given those things, then I come to the book of Job. Okay. Right? I'm, I'm ready to challenge the skeptic who says, no, we just can't know God. You have to have a, maybe it's kind of like a Schleiermachian thing. You have to have some kind of experience of the other, which is what Job gets at the end. Yeah. But, it doesn't, but remember what you brought up earlier, and I said is the fixed point. That doesn't explain repentance. That's not what you don't repent of that. Right. You repent of sin. If what Job is getting is a lesson, then you say, Hey, great lesson. I'll give you five stars. You don't repent of it. Yeah. So, so then if we could really uh, home in on this then and define this, what is the deeper philosophical meaning of Job? Job, this is the first book of philosophy. It's, it's, it's wrestling with this universal problem of suffering. What is the deeper philosophical message, if you're going to distill it down and, and someone were to ask you, what is Job really about? How do you answer? The creation and all the works of God reveal God, but we have gone astray. We all like sheep have gone astray. We haven't paid attention to that. And suffering in life isn't punishment. It's a call to stop and think about our condition. And when we've properly done that, we'd repent before God. Okay. That's good. Question for you. Animal suffering. Yeah. Okay. You don't you don't directly cover this in the book, but this but your book got me thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Animal suffering is cited by skeptics, atheists, people who want to put forward the problem of evil as a sort of a defeater for God's existence. Yeah. You know, the, the God who is all wise, all good, uh, omnibenevolent, all everything else. I have an idea, Owen. I want I want to know what you think of it. Yep. Um, okay. So if if God's purpose, one of God's purposes at least in creating is to reveal who he is, general revelation. Exactly, yeah. The and and not only that, but um, but to reveal truths about himself. So so there's suffering in our own lives. That makes sense. We're sinners, but what about what if the bare fact, the the general fact that there is animal suffering, even animal suffering, in instances of which we have no access to, like right yeah. now there could be a deer dying in a fire somewhere. Precisely, yeah. I don't know that. 
that that particular deer is dying, but I know that it could be happening. I know that it, eventually it's going to happen. Some, yeah. right? Like some fish is being eaten by a shark. Right. There's, there's, there is animal suffering in the world. And rather than that being meaningless, what if that has a didactic purpose for us as well? Yeah. So that just the, the, the very fact that it does exist is meant to draw us back to God and say, there's something wrong with the world. This mm-hmm. world is, is yep. morally corrupt. And, and that ought to be a pointer for me to get back to God because I don't want to be what's wrong with this world. I need redemption. Mm-hmm. I want to put my hope in the resurrection, the resurrected state. Now I'm going back to Romans 8, 9, 10. Right. Like, like could, could that be, could the fact that there is what seems to be superfluous suffering in the world, even the very existence of it, not each instantiation, but the existence of it is didactic for us, meant to draw us back to God? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'll, so I'll say yes, and then I'll tell you how some objections might go, and then okay. we'll answer those objections. Okay. Because I, I think so, and I think that animal suffering is different in kind than human suffering for because of what Job says in in chapters. I think it's seven sixteen. My life is meaningless. Animal suffering is at the level of avoiding pain. They do things to avoid pain, and when they suffer, you know, uh, uh, in my backyard, I've got quail and there's also predators around and they'll suffer if they get caught in the talons of something and it hurts huh, yeah and they try to avoid that by hiding under uh bushes but they ne- you never come across a group of quail and one of them is giving a lecture to the other ones about how to make sense of death right. right they don't they don't need meaning in that way so that's a problem unique to humans and that's what makes the problem of evil such a human problem not and everything problem. Now, a lot of times we anthropomorphize animals, especially because of the influence of Disney. Yeah, so totally. We'll assume they are out there all thinking, right? It's like Toy Story. The second I leave, they all start giving philosophy lecture, lectures to each other. <laughs> right, uh, right. Whereas, no, that's not the case at all. These are animals. They're not humans. So yeah. a lot of times when I read about animal suffering, I can tell the author is projecting human qualities onto the animals. Okay. Nor does that, but that doesn't make them, I, I hear people going to that extreme, therefore they don't matter. No, not at all. Yeah. Uh, they are cre- 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 uh, creatures made by God, and, and they're the things that God draws Job's attention to. We we should see the wisdom and beauty in the world, and what that says about God and the yeah. creatures He made. Yeah. But so so I think you're right. But the objection will be so they're kind of like the children of Job. They're just a means to humans doing something. Yeah. Yeah. And now, I'm, not, I'm not trying to go. I'm, I'm not saying that's the that's the only purpose. That's the only thing. But. Yeah. Well, I think, so I think in their created reality, they display the wisdom of God, but then even in the fact of natural evil, it displays the the, the glory of God this way. David Hume said this in his dialogues, and that's a book I have in the hopper. I'm going to come out with soon, I hope, as a commentary on his dialogues. Cool. Because you get all the best arguments against God's existence there. Just devastating ones. Contemporary philosophers still, they'll have to say, well, I answered Hume but this, it's usually when I look at it, it's because they don't see what Hume was doing. He was undoing all the arguments from Plato, all the arguments from Aristotle. They're all gone. Well, Hume, so, Hume also does away with a lot of the rationalistic atheism. That, that's oh, yeah, well. yeah. yeah. He yeah. ends up as a kind of a mystical position. Uh, so what he says in there is this. He has one of his characters say, the world is filled with misery and wickedness. Hmm. And and the, the believer, say the Christian, who's answering the problem of evil – often tries to minimize that and say, no, it's not. It's not that bad. Like, I, didn't you see the sunset last night? I think what we do is embrace it. Say, yeah. And there's a relationship between them. 
symbolic, a sign relationship. And wickedness comes fir first. The world is filled with wickedness. And because of that, the world is filled with misery. And I don't mean a causal connection, like people are greedy and they cause other people to be poor. Yeah. I mean, God imposed misery on the world in that symbolic relationship I mentioned uh, a number of times today to get us to stop and think. And that shows how bad the wickedness is. It's not a little bit of wickedness. It's not like a thin layer of water. It's filled with it. Yeah. And that should make us stop and think. So you mentioned the, the famous William Rowe example of the fawn dying in a forest fire. Uh, think about how long it was until we knew about the penguins. Right. Remember the March of the Penguins? And just the brutal lives those guys live, yeah. filled with suffering and death. And we had no idea that was going on. But what we did know was the world is filled with misery. Yeah. And, and, and scripture is very clear on that. All creation has been subjected to frustration. Yeah. And groaning. Yep. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think that reduces th this criticism that reduces them to a means will be true for everything to that kind of objector, because everything is a means to the revelation of the glory of God, which is our highest good. Uh -huh. Right. Right. And so as, as Christians, the fact that we say something is a means to a particular end that God wants to accomplish is not the same thing as saying, and therefore its meaning is diminished. Okay. It's actually, it, it actually, it that brings it out. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Right. It, it well, even, I saw someone recently even say, uh, even that's wrong to say that God acts for his glory is wrong. God acts out of love, but that's as if you could divide those because <laughs> to love means to do what is good for the other. So you can't even define love unless you know what is good for the other. And, and for humans, what's good for us is to enjoy God and, and make him known. Yeah. To glorify God and all that by which he's made himself known. So God loves us in bringing us out of our darkened mind, redeeming us and putting us into that place. That's the love of God. So those, those two things, the glory of God and the love of God, aren't opposites. You got to pick one. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, okay. One more thing, total sidebar on, yeah. I want to just, I want to, I want to show you what I think has been mistranslated in our modern Bibles. Um, when, you know, when God's bringing out all the different animals yeah, and he, he talks about, you know, two animals get oh, all the yeah. attention. Don't forgive this. Remind okay. me of a sidebar okay. before, before we're done. Sidebar to the sidebar. Yeah. Okay. So all the attention goes to what I think are those living dinosaurs, the uh, Leviathan and the behemoth. Okay. I think I'm just, I'm going to throw it out there. I think behemoth is some sort of uh, um, apatosaurus, probably something like that with a tail like a cedar. I think that the Leviathan is something like a chronosaurus or something like that. The thrashes up the deep. Maybe they could breathe fire. I don't know. Yep. But, but dude, the, 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 what's translated as wild ox. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. In, in the King James, you saw me. I, I posted this yeah. on Facebook. In the face, in in the uh, uh, King James, it's unicorn, yeah. and of course, everybody mocks it. Oh, the Bible has mythical creatures like yeah. unicorns, and they. Think I think I think the King James mentions unicorns nine times. Yes. Oh, I didn't know nine. That's that's mm -hmm. very cool. But let me just show you, I, and and by way of showing you, I want to show our our yeah. uh, our viewers here. The, when the Bible talks about unicorns, it's not talking about pink horses with a beautiful horn and a flowing sparkly mane it's it's uh here's what it's talking about look at this this is this is the siberian unicorn that went extinct at some point in the past can you see that yeah yeah uh here let me let me see if i can get a bigger picture of it this is uh in other words quite a large like ox like 
creature with a horn out of his head, not his nose like the rhinoceros. Yes. This is a this is a Siberian unicorn. Yes, it's not a rhinoceros. Uh it's not a horn nose. Right. And and if Job if 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 Job was written in this early period after the flood before Abraham, I don't see any reason why yeah. these bad boys couldn't have been roaming around, you yeah. know? And you hear the way that God describes them. Oh, is he going to plow your field for you? I mean, look yeah. at this thing. You know, this is something yeah. that you you see one of those roaming around. You tell the kids to get inside. You sh- close the shutters and you hunker down and hope he doesn't try to knock your tent over or whatever, yeah. you know? Well, that's uh, the thing. We didn't talk about that too much, but this fits in well with our previous discussion on Gnostic imagery. Because mm-hmm. what God does is he draws Job's attention to the natural world. Yes. And then one popular reading is that he he's going along doing that for a couple of chapters. And then all of a sudden he switches to Canaanite deities. So the Leviathan and the behemoth are, are say they're, they're like the devil and death itself. Right. Or some version of that. Yeah. And so in the book, I just point out like, no, this is all the consistent flow of this is drawing your attention to the natural world that God made. Have you considered it? And then you're right to point out that we're not limited to currently uh, living things. We could there possibly for many things that are extinct uh, to us, they're being mentioned. But I think that's an important point that, yeah, that this is not all of a sudden this, this book does not suddenly switch in Gnosticism in those two chapters. Yeah. That's or, good. Or all of a sudden, what, was, what was your other sidebar you wanted to get to? Then we, we should get to some of these questions. Yeah. The, well, and, and so the, uh, the Gnostic incidentally, it's, it's, I, I think it comes out of higher criticism because what they're saying is the Jews live next to the Canaanites and they all kind of believed in the same spiritual forces. Yeah. And then the Jews are saying, Yahweh's better than your guys. Right. So was, we already know that's not true. That's all mistaken. But my sidebar just, was just to mention Elihu uh, and, and just, we didn't get to him oh, yeah. and he, he causes people some puzzles, but I present him as uh, a preparing the way for God yeah. in, in almost a John, John the Baptist type of way that he, he's not reprimanded with the other friends. And what he does is he directs Job to the same sin that God directs Job to so that you justified yourself rather than God. And that's what God ends up indicting Job on also. So I see Elihu as an example of you can figure these things out. So that's against the idea you have to have God just show up. It's like, no, Elihu is an example. You could figure these things out and you should have. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting too this is i like to go on these rabbit trails and there's probably nothing there but the name elihu is it's it's basically if i understand correctly it's basically the it's like another version of elijah which is oh, yeah, uh, yeah. you know eliyahu um only without the yah because god hadn't revealed his name as yah at this point you no know, he doesn't do that until moses at least i don't think um and so you've got uh Elihu, which means he is my God. And then you've got Eliyahu, which I guess means Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is mm-hmm. yeah, my God. And John the Baptist is the second Elihu, uh, Eliyahu. Yeah. And and John the Baptist prepared the way. So maybe there's yeah. something, maybe there's something about that name. I don't I don't know. Yeah, there, really. Right. You know, there's some theological significance about that name. Maybe we'll do another podcast on names sometime. Yeah. Um, do you want to get to mm-hmm. some of these yeah. questions? Yeah. All right, let's do this. Okay, we've had a lot of questions come in on YouTube. Um, now, this is from Georgina Cena. 
Georgina, thanks so much for watching. She says, some people say that Job was not written by Moses. How do we know that Moses was the author? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good question. It really gives us far afield from this topic just because that's really a problem for each of the books of the Bible. So how do we approach the Bible? The, the current method would be that you would look for archaeological evidence that you have some, at least two or three corroborating sources that say, hey, I remember this time I was having lunch with Moses and he was talking about a book he was writing called Job. Now, those are problematic because there's then that, that sort of pushes the problem back. Like, how do you know that source is trustworthy? Yeah. So, I mean, for myself, I, I approach it simply as we know we need scripture and that scripture must come from God. So we already know when we come to it, that this is infallible word of God. And so that doesn't, for me, I don't have any questions then about, about the authors. Yeah. And it could have very well been written down. I mean, it predates Moses anyway. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Was, it would have been someone alive. Right. So let's say, right. So if it's specifically, if you mean, how do we know Moses did it? I, I think that's probably uh, conjecture and tradition because it, it, it it's almost as if the author of this book doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. The content is what matters. Yeah. But how do we know in general? Like how do we know Moses wrote Genesis or how do we know Matthew wrote Matthew? Right. Um, yeah. I, I, I usually flip higher criticism upside down. I say higher criticism has these naturalistic assumptions it approaches the Bible with, which are false. And so I'm not really bothered by those same things. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it really depends on how you, you know, what assumptions you're bringing to the table. Uh, Gospel Ambassador says, how do you reconcile suffering in the book of Job and 3 John 1 verse 2, which says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health as thy soul prospereth. And also John 10, 10, which I believe is Jesus came to give us life and life abundantly. So is there, is there a tension there? Uh, no, I think that precisely pushes us when we're trying to understand uh, these passages by John, both of them by John, uh, it pushes us to the same problem that Job's wrestling with. Does it mean health there simply that I don't have ulcers? Or does it mean spiritual health, that I'm, I'm actually upright before God? My soul prospers, right? Yeah. So we don't want to just materialize it and say, well, this just means that I'm in great shape. I, got, I have low blood sugar, good, good uh, lung capacity, good oxygenation in my right. blood. Not health in that sense. And then I think that John 10.10 10 is even better. Say, yeah, he came to give us life. What is that life? Is it is it sitting around drinking whiskey and smoking cigars? Some people say, that's life. Now I'm really living. Yeah. Say, no, life, John says it, or he quotes Jesus saying it in, in John 17.3, is to know God. Yeah. It has to be life that's accessible to anyone in any situation for it to be yeah. real life, abundant life, because not everybody has whiskey and cigars. I mean, yeah. tobacco didn't begin to be cultivated until pretty much until they came to the new world. So it's like, what, for 1500 years, they didn't have, you know, the good yeah. life. Some material enjoyment. That's what people relate to, right? Some kind of like prosperity at ease. And I'm not putting those things down because uh, we're all, we're also not, I uh, mentioned other worldliness, right? We, we do have bodies. Yeah. But our highest good is in knowing God. So that's what God wants for us. And the fact of the matter is we're not paying attention. We're not seeking. What's it going to take to get us to seek? Right. And if it took Joe, here's the scary part, I guess. If it took this for Job, who's the most upright, kind of like, uh oh, 
What's it going to take for me? Right. That's but but here's the thing. That's why you're given the book of Job. Amen. We don't Consider all have my to go servant. This. Yeah. Consider yeah. my servant Job. That's how I. Uh, that's why that stuck with me through the whole book. Have you? Not just Satan. Have you considered God's servant Job? It's almost like a great God, part like, where he, where Job actually says, "I wish that my my these things could be written down in a book." Yeah, like, did he know? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Joe, talk about wise. You, I, I can see why you view him as the first philosopher. The man was wise. He, <laughs> it's like it's. You almost get the sense that he's he's like breaking the fourth wall sometimes and and looking at you like, uh, I wish these yeah. things would be written down in a book. You know. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, there's uh, another question from Gospel Ambassador. Is there a suffering that is of the devil and needs to be resisted? Um, woman with infirmity, Luke thirteen sixteen, and yeah. then uh, there's there's a quote there: "Whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day." In other words, is there some suffering that is of the devil and that actually we should resist? What well, wasn't Job's? Right. That, yeah, I mean, that's, 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 that's true. Part of that. Job starts off with, yeah, the devil imposing suffering on him. So there's always that sense of, is this purely natural? Does this involve some kind of oppression? But whether it does or not, it's all under God. God is sovereign over it. So whichever one of those, this woman who might go and see doctors for years and she can't get help, uh, and she goes to Christ to be healed, so the natural doctors aren't healing her. Yeah. Uh, whatever it is. It's all under the sovereign rule of God, and it all serves that same purpose. So the devil might mean it for one thing, like Joseph said to his brothers, but God meant it for something else. Yeah, no, that's good. Okay, um, we've got a few more questions coming in. Uh, hey, real quick, instantly, that phrase should be resisted. Uh, I, I don't intend to give the impression that we should either seek out or revel in suffering. There's right. absolutely nothing wrong with being cured of suffering Amen. Uh, and, and, and benefiting from the, the development of medical science. You don't have to seek out suffering in life because there's plenty of it. It'll find us, right? Absolutely. If we were supposed to seek out suffering, um, well, how much is enough? I mean, we should constantly yeah. be, if that was, yeah. you know, if that was what God wanted, we should always be seeking as much suffering as possible. Yeah, so that's, that's not at all. What we should take from the story. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Suffering is going to find us and we need we we need to consider God's servant Job uh as preparation for that and yeah. as, as strength through that. Um brother we've got to wrap this up. So where can people find your book and how can they get in touch? Hey the, the easiest way is either Amazon.com or barnesnoble.com and uh I, I think some of the smaller ones, smaller online books stores have it as well. And you can contact me. I have a webpage, DrOwenAnderson.com, and I have a YouTube page, Dr. Owen Anderson on YouTube. So yeah, uh, contact me and uh, look forward to keeping in touch with some of your, your viewers. And I, I hope to be back on your show. Yeah, well, now you're putting me you got on a thing going so, here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have to. Uh, no, man, it, it's uh, it's really been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Um, Next time we got to let's go off the rails again on one of these uh, esoteric topics because I really I love talking about that stuff and yeah well now we got Loki out we can talk about Loki oh man yeah and there was that 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 video that was a kids video I sent you a message about recently you know what I want to do oh and maybe you can help me with this 
I want to dissect some of these movies, like really get into them. And I don't know if we make that into a series or what, yeah. but we say like, look, this is, this is literally what we talked about last episode. Yeah. These are some of these Luciferian myths. Yeah. This, if, if, if you're, if you're not aware of what is being said here, you're yeah. going to think that the enemy is just, you know, this all powerful computer. No, no, no. That's right. a metaphor for God. This is a, this yeah. is a Luciferian story. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah, I, I think so. I think, and I think with that goal, cause, cause there was the, you know, there's, there's, there's been a caricature of that view, which is, Oh no, here we go. The Satan scare. Right. Uh, but the goal is to contrast that there's been really two stories in human yeah. history. Yeah. That's all. And they're told in various ways. And that's still true today. All these stories are just one of those two stories. Hmm. That's good. All right, brother. Well, thank you so much for coming on and yeah, uh, can't wait for next time. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Well, thank you for watching this installment of the Think Podcast with Joel Sedeckes. This is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Now, let's say you want to get in touch with me. You can do that by emailing me at thethink.institute at gmail.com. If you want to bring me to your church, homeschool co-op, um, conference retreat. You can do that by going to thethink.institute slash booking. You can get more content like this from our YouTube channel. And you know what? If you like this, could you go ahead, like this video, and then you're going to want to subscribe to our YouTube channel and make sure you hit that bell so that you never miss a moment. We are very close very close to 1,000 subscribers. You can download uh, or rather get all the back catalog of our podcast episodes by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. And if you're listening on the podcast, thank you for listening. Please go ahead and give us an honest five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Why do I ask for that? Well, because somehow, some way that helps Apple know that people are listening, people like the show, and it helps them get the word out about what we're trying to do. Also want to let you know that um, back again in the fall, we're going to be starting up a new um, Hammer and Anvil course. Uh, we just wrapped up one on the apologetics of Jesus and Paul. We've got a new one coming in the fall. I'm taking a little bit of time over the summer. I'm actually going to be speaking at a men's ministry here in the area and um, also, one more quick note, little housekeeping. You might notice my backdrop is different right now. I am in the process. My wife and I are in the process right now of, of setting up a, a physical location for the Think Institute. There's, um, there's going to be uh, the, there's the library, the study, um, a big, beautiful leather couch, seating area. There's going to be a bar stocked with bourbon and scotch and beer, um, a beautiful fireplace, and we're working on this right now. So my background's a little different because we're in transition, but this is going to be really, really cool. I'm really excited about it. If you happen to find yourself in the Chicagoland area, stay tuned because we're going to be hosting events, discussions, possibly debates, theological colloquies, and things like that. And um, you are not going to want to miss out on those. So definitely stay tuned. Um, if I've got some people commenting, uh, someone's commenting, um, I didn't get to your question. If we didn't get to your question, I apologize. Some sometimes uh, a question is not directly related to the content matter, or we're just out of time. I can tell you right now, my battery is about to die on my laptop. It might go out at any minute. So, and my cord, because I'm in this temporary situation, my cord doesn't reach all the way to the outlet. So, if I didn't get to you, it's because I was concerned that the battery would die in the middle of the 
the uh, answering the question. So uh, thanks again to our guest, Dr. Owen Anderson. I sure hope you heard something helpful today. I know I certainly did. And remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. So until next time, I hope it made you think. Thank you.